0: I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places.
1: An app that was not doing what it was supposed to do as a dating app, that actually created the space for a more authentic connection.
0: Is there a formula to finding love? Dating apps seem to think so, with algorithms pooling from your personal data, offering up only the best potential suitors. You'd think that love, or finding it at least, was cracked. Sadly, or maybe thankfully, the machines haven't quite figured out love yet. Not far from giving up on finding the one, Laura Morrison from the book No Such Thing As Perfect gets to trial a new groundbreaking dating service that promises to find her perfect match. The question is, can the technology go far enough to sort out her messy love life, and work life, and family life, and, well, you get the picture. No Such Thing As Perfect is a romantic comedy, a genre we'll discuss in great detail a little later. I'm delighted to say that the book's author, Emma Hughes, is my guest today. Chapter 1. Cupid. There really is no such thing as perfect, but we so badly want to believe in the concept of the one. We're seemingly happy to suspend our disbelief. This high-tech dating service Cupid promises much more than could ever realistically be possible. It scours your internet history, drawing on everything you've ever done online to find your perfect match, which all sounds a bit dystopian, if you ask me. But when Laura first meets Adam, the app, the tech, they all seem to have worked perfectly. That is, until she develops feelings for someone else. This is a brilliant book which juxtaposes wonderfully funny moments with crippling anxiety. Emma tells us where the idea came from.
1: There is a a chapter of the book. It's the one where Laura goes to her older sister Jamie's barbecue. That was originally a short story and it sort of had one of the other chapters tacked on to the end. But it had Laura and Jamie in it and... Adam as well, although he was a slightly different character at that point. And um, I liked the characters and I felt like they were sort of talking to each other quite engagingly. But I just didn't think there was enough of much as I would have liked to have heard more from them as people. I just thought there isn't really enough of a hook here for me as a writer to want to kind of, you know, do 90 to 100,000 words of this. So I put it aside and funnily enough, that was actually, um, that was well before Fleabag. And when I watched Fleabag and I saw this dynamic of a kind of, uh, a sort of rather uptight controlling over sis- older sister and the sort of chaotic younger one, I thought, oh, oh no. Uh, but then I thought, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Like that story's never going to see the light of day. So I put it aside for a few years. And in the interim, my, my then- Flatmate was a software engineer who had just come back from working on the on the West Coast in San Francisco. And we were both at that point sort of quite familiar with the various different dating apps. And we used to talk a lot like in the evenings when we were having our dinner about why it was that they were so inefficient <laughs> and whether there was ever a way of making them better at matching people and I found those conversations really really interesting because he had a real insight into the kind of nuts and bolts of it and one evening we were talking about it and I said as a joke I tell you what like tinder should really plug in to kind of give the best possible uh, uh information about what someone's really like I said it should look at my search history and We both laughed and he said, um, I said, oh, that's a a frightening idea. And he said, well, maybe maybe you should write something about it. And I said, yeah, maybe I will. And um, it's kind of my favourite bit of being a writer when suddenly the kind of combination to the safe clicks and you Mm. think, ah, yes. And to be honest, like from that moment when I thought, hmm, maybe there's something here, the whole plot came together. I'd say probably within a few days and it didn't really change that much because I'm a a definite definite planner
0: very often the answers do fall into your lap if you just allow them the time and space to breathe and it felt very natural you know when we first meet her she is in of it's in very well trodden territory things aren't going well at home with the family the relationship there isn't one really to speak of and she's also been given a kicking at work and the savior then comes in a a, a presumably a long-form article that she's going to write about this new technology called cupid which will find you the perfect match and i've often found just on this i've often found that why doesn't it come with a disclaimer that should say the perfect person is out there for you, brackets, just as long as they're on the same platform as you, because it's only of the people that, that she can get access to. But she starts to, to use this dating app. And I think we can talk about it without really giving away what happens. But essentially, she meets Mr. Wright and that relationship gets tested but you mentioned the barbecue and I, and it would be remiss of me not to talk about little details as well as the big picture my i think there is i have several favorite moments in this but one i think comes at the barbecue i just want to read it because i get a real kick out of out of, out of making a a writer feel good about their work but there is an exchange with a couple and i think we've all met this couple and the line is very simply we're loving it aren't we Rory we're loving it Rory confirmed and you just think that's just great because that's what being in a relationship is is like you know you're kind of on autopilot a lot of the time but at the other end of the book there is something that is written that is, I think, actually very profound. And I, and I wondered if we could hang here for a moment. It's the sentence, people with low self-esteem can self-sabotage by derailing promising new relationships. And I thought about that and I thought, actually, that's right. Right. I think there are a, there's a huge capacity in all of us for self destruction. It's just that you know most of us are capable of putting a lid on it, but that's a very real thing, isn't it? You know, people like Laura could very easily press the self destruct button, maybe just to see what happens, or just because maybe she doesn't believe that she can ever be truly happy.
1: Yeah, that question was one that I really had at the front of my mind as I was writing the book, because I mean, yes, you're absolutely right, like we all of us, and not just in our romantic relationships, but, you know, in work, in our creativity, we all have that capacity to be so frightened of losing something that we actually create an ending before one has naturally happened, just so that we can kind of be in control of that process. And that can be sort of conscious or not to various degrees. But I think especially in the area of relationships, And I'm going to go out on a limb here, you may disagree with me, and say that I think this is something that popular culture and kind of magazines and things like that mean that women are much more vexed by perhaps than men. Is this question of, is it that I am not attracted to this person? Am I just not very into it? Or am I feeling this way? Am I feeling disengaged from this relationship that actually has lots of good things about it? Because... Because there's something wrong with me because I, you know, because I am self-sabotaging and um, I've certainly had a lot of conversations with, you know, friends who are women who date men where they said, oh, you know, I just, you know, I think I just need to kind of push through this this discomfort. And it's an interesting, because that's so much, Laura is kind of made to doubt her own intuition a lot during the book but also at the same time her intuition is not is not very good <laughs> so
0: there is one more one more aspect of the book i'd love to talk about and that is big bad tech uh and the metaverse and you know and all things technological you mentioned your flatmate who was working over on you know the west coast the things like cupid i know you have invented cupid but apps and tech we have such a reliance on it. You and I are using a piece, pieces of technology to have this conversation. But the control, I think, that they can have over our lives is a really important part of this book. Because essentially, and I won't, I won't give too much away, but essentially the entire algorithm that has been created has convinced, at least in the short term, Laura, that Adam is the perfect one for her and that isn't it brilliant kismet that that it's been, you know, that it's ended up like this, but there is a much deeper, darker and more serious reality to that. When you talked about dating apps and when you use them, you know, in your real life, to what extent were you conscious of what the app was actually doing or did you not think about it?
1: I certainly became much more conscious about it while writing and after writing this book. So I, I did interview quite a few people who had worked on similar apps and in in some cases it actually kind of helped to build dating apps and they were really depressing conversations really uh yeah i won't name the app but i did speak to someone who had helped to build one and um and he said well you know there are 10 times as many men as there are women in kind of, you know, the, the heterosexual interface. So we, we stuff it with fake female profiles and, uh, they're kind of, you know, they're bots. And so they reply a little bit just to make people think, yeah, okay, these are real people. And then they stop. But by that point, you've kind of, I don't know if that's still going on at, uh, that particular nameless app. <laughs> um, it wasn't one of the, wasn't one of the big ones I, uh, hasten to add. And, um, Then I spoke to someone else in the U.S. who basically said matching algorithms are 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 terrible and unnatural, and there's kind of no way that they, the way they work, is is so contrary to actually what humans need. He said your best bet is to just just wipe your app regularly and start again, so it it never has the chance to think it knows you. It just basically plonks you in a room full of strangers you know as if you were walking into a bar and it was it was sort of personally interesting for me after that because i then at that point i was i was single and i joined an app that had a sort of famously really it was just really badly designed from a from a kind of tech perspective it just didn't really work very well and one of the people it presented me with it had completely ignored my location preferences. This person was several hundred miles away. It completely ignored my age preferences. This person was in the wrong bracket. Everything about this match on a kind of algorithmic level was it, it had got it wrong. But actually, we then ended up in a, in a relationship. Oh, wow. So an app that was not doing what it was supposed to do as a dating app, that actually created the space for a more authentic connection to happen and if the app had kind of followed its own rules we never would have met
0: well I'm delighted that you did and that you're in a relationship but a little bit of me does hate that <laughs> a little bit of me does hate that that's what that's what happened and that's what it ended up doing yeah. but you know I get I mean literally then there is no such thing as perfect is there I think that's that's where we are chapter 2 romcom con Lipstick, dresses, high heels. You clock a book in your local bookstore with any one of these adorning the front cover, and you can be very certain of the novel's genre. There's a stigma attached to romance, a genre believed to be without substance or literary merit, as Emma puts it. No such thing as perfect has a great deal to say about the world, woven together with an underlying series of messages about life and love. But we don't often see rom-coms as being profound. There's a notion that romantic comedy is a bit grubby and maybe not worthy of critical acclaim. So why are rom-coms viewed as less meaningful or impactful than other genres?
1: I mean, you've you've uh, you've brought us onto one of my favourite subjects. Oh, <laughs> fabulous! Um, and it's yeah something I could talk about at great length. So please please stop me if steam starts pouring out my ears. Um, yes a lot of my kind of colleagues, I guess I'll call them, it's not something you you really think about until you're published. Because when you're writing a book, I think as a first-time author, you just think, well, I'm writing a book. And, you know, you might have an idea of where you might like it to sit in in a bookshop if it was published or what you might like the cover to look like. But um, certainly most of the authors I know – who have ended up being published under the umbrella of, of, as you say, kind of romance, romantic comedy, were not really thinking of themselves in that niche. And certainly for me, like I, I have always read a lot of romantic comedies, but I also read a lot of other stuff. And I kind of grew up reading a lot of like Terry Pratchett and Douglas Adams. And, you know, what I wanted to write was a comedy. I think I wanted to be a, you know, a comedy writer. And in my mind, I was just sort of a writer who happened to be writing about relationships. But then kind of once you get into the sort of the machine, as you say, you you are kind of designated in a, a particular lane. And then there is kind of specific packaging, you know, your covers your, and and all of that can be, you know, it can be very helpful, I think, for writers as well as readers. But exactly as you say, there is this this strange sort of um, conspiracy of silence around romantic comedies because it is a huge a huge share of the market. I mean, they they sell, I think, kind of more than any other genre. You know, and as as you've said, what we're talking about here is it goes beyond relationships. And I think every romantic comedy I've read over the past few years has dealt with much more universal themes than just kind of a person X meets person Y. And kind of everybody knows this and everybody says, oh, isn't it? It's such a shame that these these books don't get the kind of critical reception that they deserve. And yet nothing changes. And I I actually I was so um. Uh, well we're coming up to it again this the time we're recording this but the sort of the best books of the year lists last year I, I don't think there was a single romantic comedy on on any of them and quite a lot of them had kind of sub sub lists of you know historical uh crime thriller genre books and then there's there's nothing for it's it's like they don't exist and it made me it made me so cross I wrote an opinion piece for the Guardian and I said, you know, we, um, because, uh, you know, a lot of the time I'm kind of badged as uh, women's commercial fiction, which is, it's true. You know, I write commercial fiction in that, you know, it. I hope it sells and it's mostly read by women. But we don't call, you know, the books with sort of names like Bravo, Agent, Mincemeat. Uh, we don't call them men's commercial fiction. We just, we just call them books. And I, I got so many emails about that. People saying, "Oh my God, you're so right!" You know, there's this, there's this bizarre kind of double standard, and yet the status quo kind of doesn't, um, doesn't change. And you, you're actually the first person I've, um, I've spoken to about this. But I am um, hopefully next year launching a romantic comedy uh, literary festival, <laughs> which is uh, in my head is called Rom Con, because. Um, you know that there isn't any of that either. It's some. Um, it's extraordinarily difficult as a writer of women's commercial fiction to get on the bill at any of the kind of existing literary festivals, and there there is no kind of Harrogate equivalent for us. So,
0: mm. yeah. I mean, if you if we were clear about the size of, or I think if we were clearer about the size of the market, you know, and you talked about how many copies these books sell. This is this is huge money. That we're talking about here and i think that to not give it the critical acclaim is both disrespectful to the writers and also fatally perhaps to the readers because we've said many times on this show that the value of anything is whether it finds an audience and and books like yours have clearly found an audience and that audience then can build into a community if you if you create rom Kong Kong, which i think is a great name by the way Um, And I would love to come, Um, (laughs) but, you know, there's, there's something about the industry and there's something often crushing about walking into a bookstore and seeing the types of books that you describe, not because there's anything wrong with them. There isn't, they're very, they're very well written. They're very commercially successful, but it's the fact that that's all you see well, that's all you tend to see is the stuff that, that's selling or the, there's the perception that that is the stuff that's selling. Well, actually, no, it's not, or it's not just that. This is a massive market. And it struck me reading your book that it's not really a romantic comedy. I mean, it, it's, that's, that's the genre, right? But this is a story for me anyway of the fact that what I love about this more than anything else is that ironically – this Cupid platform ends up being the savior for this completely dysfunctional group of people who have massive family problems. The relationship between the two sisters is flawed. The relationship between the two sisters and their father is a train wreck. And that pervades, I think, pretty much every other part of their life. And and to me, those characters, as dysfunctional as they were, were so authentically drawn and often and I wonder if you've had this, actually, because it's rare I get to speak to a writer whose work has been out in the wild for a long time. So maybe we can touch on the reception that it's had. But for a lot of people, dysfunctional characters are problematic. They don't like them. They don't feel that they can be drawn to them. And often I, I kind of think, well, you know, they're entirely authentic because families are screwed up, right? Weird stuff happens within families. And actually what you're writing about is real. And maybe people don't want to read that, right? Maybe they want, you know, some idealistic um, world in in which you write in. But that's the irony of this whole thing is that this technology platform that is designed to find the perfect person who's out there ends up not doing that and instead finding the solution to this dysfunctional family. That for me at least, is what I th- I think your book is all about.
1: I think you've um, you've summed it up really well there, so thank you. <laughs> and that was very much my, my hope in writing it, that there would be a happy ending, but that it wouldn't be a happily ever after because those don't exist in real life. You know, there is no kind of curtain that comes down when everything's perfect. You know, you might have a lovely moment and then your life carries on and maybe things get better or worse. The question of of kind of dysfunctionality and what that does to the appeal of characters is is really, really interesting to me because I have certainly always as a reader been drawn to somewhat dysfunctional main characters, I guess, because like you said, they to me, they feel real because we we do all just kind of blunder through our lives, don't we? Um, with hindsight being twenty twenty, but in the moment, maybe not always making the best decisions. But when the book kind of got out into the world, something I was really surprised by was that in my online reviews, there was a a kind of, I would say, a significant minority of people who really didn't like it because they found, and they said they found Laura unlikable because she was um, immoral. That was a word that came up because they didn't agree with some of the decisions that she'd made. And that was, I'd never, it never occurred to me that kind of, you know, we're not, we're not talking kind of robbery and murder, <laughs> you know, but yeah, it, it had never occurred to me that, that one would think a book was not a good book because you witnessed the, the protagonist making some bad decisions. And that's been a really interesting thing to kind of encounter. And I have, I've really tried to kind of not let it when I was writing my second one, not let it shape what I was doing, but um, I was certainly aware of it as a possibility in a way that when I was writing the first one, it just never occurred to me.
0: Chapter three, Golden Showers. I learned a long time ago to think about a review, good or bad, for 24 hours, and then let it go. Because whatever it says, nothing good comes of dwelling on it. And this advice is particularly important to remember if you're a new writer, and your work has not yet been unleashed upon the world. I speak to many debut novelists on the show, and while no such thing as perfect is still young, having only been out in the wild for a little over a year now, Emma is definitely past those early days of being a debutante, so it's great to hear her unique perspective. During this past year, she's reflected on her work in an incredibly useful but understated way, a strategy I think other writers could do well to emulate.
1: Well, I, I have been very overwhelmed with with book two, which is now finally um, it's gone off to be typeset, and um, that will be out midway through next year. But I did actually, when I was going through a particularly difficult patch with my second book, I picked uh, no such thing as perfect up because I've got I've got a shelf of them, and I actually re I read it as a kind of reader, and honestly i I wouldn't I wouldn't change anything about it, and I may well not feel like that about other books in the future. I think maybe it's quite unusual to feel like that. And certainly as a journalist, I I quite often encounter something I've written and think, oh, oh God, I can't believe I've phrased it like that. That's terrible. But with this one, I just sort of, I feel there's honestly never been a day when I haven't felt really, I really love it. You know, I feel very kind of proud of it and protective of it. And it's um, a very personal book.
0: When you read it, did it make you laugh?
1: It did. Some bits did.
0: Because <laughs> uh, I, I think from a comedy writing perspective, that's really when you, when you make yourself laugh, I, I think you've, you've got something there. I was once on a train and I was going through a script that I had written and I was trying to find a way. And I was so engrossed in what I was doing that I didn't realise for an hour and a half until the tea trolley came down and I recognized her voice that Victoria Wood, God bless her was sat opposite me. And she said, Oh, she said, we said, we got chatting and she said, Oh, are you a, a writer? I said, yes. She said, what are you working on? I said, Oh, it's a, it's a comedy script. I don't know why I said that because then she said, can I read it? And I was like, Oh my God. And, and so she took it. And for 10 minutes she sat there and it was the longest 10 minutes of my life because not once did she laugh. And at the end of it, she said, "Oh, she said, well done. It's very funny." And I was like, uh, "Okay." And then, amazingly, right, she just said, "But of course, you, you, you know why it's not as funny as it could be, right?" And I was like, "I think so." Anyway, she said, "Well, you think your biggest laugh is at this point? It's not. It's that point, but the setup is all wrong. So if you change the setup, and to be fair, when people read that script now." and they howl with laughter at that one moment i think well god bless you victoria wood because if it weren't for you you know that that wouldn't have that wouldn't have made it into the finished script
1: but there are
0: i know it was it was insane <laughs> and oh, there, really? there are there are bits in in your book and i want to share one with the audience because this is just this is comedy to die for right this is so clever and i'd love to know where this come from but this is a throwaway comment about a brand of shower gel, which is badged as a turmeric latte shower gel, and it's called Golden Showers. Now, that is just wonderful and it's like it's never mentioned again after that it's like where did like stuff like that is just gold so I'm delighted to hear that when you read it back it made you laugh because that no there isn't a day goes by where I don't think about that because obviously oh. you're in the showers a couple of times a day and you're like I would love to buy a golden shower shower gel well,
1: I mean I'm, I'm delighted to have uh, <laughs> brought that into your life It's, um, I, I think that is probably, that is probably the part of me that read a lot of Pratchett and Douglas Adams as a teenager talking because I, in their writing, something I've always really, really appreciated is just those little kind of things that, like comedy baubles on the tree, that they are very incidental to them, but they just, you know, it's a little funny aside. And actually another writer I really love who... I mean, she's she's kind of one of my favourites of all time, who I think does it so well, is um, Catherine Heine, who I just admire so much. And she really does make me snort out loud. And there's a line in one of her short stories that I always come back to, where she's talking about a character called Bunny Pringle. And she says, Bunny Pringle, everyone always referred to Bunny Pringle by both of her names, like Darth Vader. <laughs> and it's just like... <laughs> it's brilliant it's a perfect joke and bunny prinkle is like it's the opposite of darth vader she's just like a woman in a jumper who sits on her porch and it's just that there's no purpose to that being there but you know that's what stays with me in that story and i it's brought me a lot of joy and i if i can have that kind of effect on people reading my work then that is really that's just wonderful to me so thank you
0: one question that I do like to ask writers is, if we were to meet these characters again in a year's time, where would they be? Would would this family that is very dysfunctional, and I've said, you know, in the end, they end up becoming closer together as a result of what happens to them. In, in your mind, does that coming closer together carry on are they in a better place do you think a, a year or so on or or has it all gone off the rails horribly again
1: a, that is a really good question and honestly it's <laughs> i actually don't know and i i've had um i have had have because i i left the ending kind of deliberately a bit ambiguous and i have had a few people say oh but, but what happened and i said well I, I actually don't know because sort of for me at that at that point, like beyond that, the characters kind of belong to the readers. Yes. And I'm, it's almost like I can't, they've left my kind of control beyond the last page. Yeah.
0: Just on that point, um, just before the first lockdown, I had a play was making its um premiere um at London's biggest arts festival. And it's a two person, one hour piece. And, the central message or the central question and dilemma is, is this one character going to stay or is he going to run? And what was interesting is that hearing the audience's reaction in the bar after the show every night, it was different. What people thought about, you know, is he going to stay? And and what we said as a company was you will feel differently as, as these characters each night. So if you feel yourself, you know, thinking that I might go. The other character, the other actor is going to have to work harder to persuade you to stay. And it's right. And it doesn't really matter what I think. I I didn't write what happens next. It was deliberately left open because as you say, reading or or the arts is very democratic in the sense that it's the person consuming it that owns it. You mentioned book two. You mentioned it was going off to be typeset. Do we have a release date for book two yet, Anna?
1: Uh, we do. Yes, it is uh, July the 5th of next year and it is called It's Complicated. Uh, this one is also nominally a romantic comedy, but I think it, for me, it's more about kind of uh, fertility and friendships and that particular. It's sort of a question that I, I think I kind of touched on a bit, but I it, it's definitely been <laughs> I've worked it through a lot more in this one of um the kind of difficulty of attaining the markers of traditional adulthood in this country at this point in time if you are a single person and just sort of how much easier it is to go into things like the animals in the ark 2 by 2 so that's that's what it's about
0: <laughs> i think adulthood <laughs> is the biggest con that kids buy when they're younger they think that when you become a grown-up everything's going to be great and then the crushing reality of truth it's a trap. It's just <laughs> a massive trap yes Don't
1: well <laughs>
0: no such thing as perfect is out now we wish you well with the continued sales of that and with it's complicated next year and indeed hopefully with rom-com <laughs> which is a wonderful <laughs> name emma hughes it's been an absolute pleasure thank you
1: Thank you so much for reading it so thoughtfully and for such a wonderful discussion.
0: Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Emma Hughes for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Don't underestimate the storytelling potential of a romantic comedy. If you want to write for the genre, remember that it's not one without substance, as we're often led to believe. You can and should allow yourself to explore deep and complex issues. Don't let stigma or dare I be so bold, pride and prejudice guide your writing. Remember those comedy baubles, as Emma puts it. Although those funnier sides may not advance the plot, they are still important and your readers will thank you for including them. And finally, reread your work even after publication. Allow yourself time to reflect and look at it from a reader's perspective. It will allow you to take stock and enjoy your work in a way that's impossible when you're in the throes of the creative process. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram visit Behind the Spine podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Additionally, sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now. Stay safe. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is
1: produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.